Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics, and we'll do it from an authentically Catholic perspective. We have another bonus episode today dealing with coronavirus. Normally, uh, coronavirus and everything else is heard on the EWT <laughs> Global Catholic Radio Network. This episode, however, will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today, we have returning guests for the fourth time epidemiologist, yeah, easy for me to not say, epidemiologist Dr. Mark Strand from North Dakota State University with an update on the numbers and patterns of infection. Mark, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, so, Mark, it's been two weeks since we last spoke. What's new in the last two weeks that you think is important to know and has tickled your brain? Hmm. Well, um, we called out the peak of cases on April 4th, which were at 32,500. Two weeks ago when we met on April 22nd, we were down to 29,000 cases a day, and, and deaths seemed to have peaked at 2,400 a day. And we were seeing the impact of social distancing in terms of case numbers and deaths no longer increasing. Um, it seemed to create a window of opportunity, maybe excessive confidence among maybe some who were naively optimistic or discontented with some of the restrictiveness of the social distancing orders who began to suggest maybe that this pandemic had been hyped. But now two weeks after that, when I, when I thought we would be looking at being at like having gone down the hill right, on the other side right. of about 50% of peak, we're at actually hovering at a steady state of about 30,000 new cases a day. So we'll, we'll pick this up a little later, but I think what has struck me the most in the last couple of weeks is that the predictions from the most reputable sources of six to eight weeks ago are actually holding stronger. You know, in the face of lots of skepticism and lots of frustration two, three weeks ago, but they're actually suggesting to having been pretty close to where we where we would be. So in, in other words, uh, we haven't been going down the other side of the hill of the number of cases. We've been kind of flat or just very slightly going down. And it's, that's different than most countries, isn't it? It is. Yep. It's, it's an outlier for sure. And, you know, we've talked with uh, other epidemiology guests on our show about this being a non-uniform experience, you might say, across the country. So is it, is it predictable that the curves would be non-uniform? Is South Dakota, North Dakota, Indiana, are our curves inherently going to be different than, say, New York's? Oh, definitely. I mean, density, population densities of over a thousand people per square kilometer is kind of a cutoff point here in Fargo. We're just over a thousand people per square kilometer and therefore our risks are way lower. Whereas if you look at New York City, you're talking about 10,000 people per square kilometer. And so, yes, those, those factors have a, have a huge impact. So, I mean, I think it's interesting because we just present a national curve, but yet presenting regionalized or localized curves it would be interesting to see how they look compared to other countries. Um, yeah. We're so diverse. Right. However, I think I could say with pretty confident, you know, confidence, the states resemble the country, actually. Mm. We don't have any states who are seeing genuine suppression and significant steady reduction, you know, on, say, three-day increments. So I think that's definitely an important factor, and you're going to find regions opening up based on their perceived risk or scale of the outbreak. But I think it is still the case that most of the states actually do reflect that national level. 
Wow, because it seems like our curve looks more like Sweden than like, say, Iceland uh, that did a lot of case finding and testing or uh, New Zealand that really shut down hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Sweden's a good example. You know, they've been sort of held up as a poster in some ways, the Sweden-Norway comparison. You know, Norway was strict orders and Sweden yes. was more relaxed. And a few weeks ago, the argument was, look, Sweden's doing just as well. Well, actually, the mortality rate in Sweden is substantially higher than in yes. Norway. And the Norway's suppression has been achieved where Sweden is in the same state that we are in the US in the, a very steady state endemic level. Um, you know, it's, it took us 55 days to get to our peak. It took Sweden 52 days to get to their peak. It took Norway 26 days. And so actually I've been the last couple of weeks been looking into a list of eight or seven or eight countries that you've referred to several times. And what we're finding is that those countries are averaging 29.3 uh, days from first 10 cases to the peak of the curve, whereas Sweden and the US have, are at 55 days. And in terms of the, then the, the time of from the peak to 20% of peak height, those countries that I just referred to are on average uh, 23 days, whereas Sweden and the US both aren't even close to 20%. We're both at 70% of you know, reduction down the curve. So we're starting to see again, you know, the, the, the notion that we don't need to have as strict of orders in place, that's not holding up that well on national comparisons. That's which I hate, this, which right. I hate to say, because I want to be a bringer of hope and optimism and good news, but I think that's the reality after, you know. And that's what months. the curve said, and it's it's so good to hear you say that, because in our, in our very politicized news cycle, it's it's hard to find that, but the numbers are what they are, and that's what they look like. So I mean, this, another, another factor with that, and you know, we talk about deaths, and I know we're going to talk a little later, but Sweden has an average of 17.3 deaths per 100,000, whereas Norway is only 3.37 deaths. So it's not only numbers, it also is, it is not, and it's not only deaths, but it's actually death rate. So that yes. aggressive orders and aggressive approach results in earlier detection and better care and therefore a lower mortality rate. And in the U.S., we're more like Sweden with 13.1 deaths per 100,000. And that's, that's unsettling. And for physicians like yourselves, I think that prospect of inadequate hospital care and deaths is very unsettling. And, you know, I come at this from the epidemiology side, but I think our listeners also would be sharing that concern that, that, that deaths is a, is a significant uh, uh, sacrifice. You know, it's interesting that where the sort of the psychology and the epidemiology intersect. Because I, I think what I see in talking to patients every day and just being out and about is in our locality, um, you know, we're, we're under capacity, you would say, in our hospitals. Mm -hmm. Never experienced the New York experience. And so I think what's happened is the social motivation has just, it's really just disappeared. Yes. I think acutely in the last, I'd say 48 hours, uh, and our community looks like it did pre-pandemic. People have just lost that motivation to be tough. And I don't know the answer to that. Just calling it out is the best I can do. But it does seem to be a real troubling phenomenon. Um, if we need to ratchet down again, I'm not sure what we're able to, as a society, muster up the energy to ratchet down. Yeah. Definitely. So... You were saying that some people who were making predictions uh, several weeks ago have been right. Who are these, what are these groups that were making these predictions? 
Um, well, you know, we're talking about the uh, IHME in Washington, you know, initially had talked about up to 200,000 deaths. And I think now even the president is talking about back to maybe 134,000 deaths by August. You know, that was after having brought it down to right. 60,000. So, so what addiction. happened? Yeah, because the IHME went down to like 60,000 or so. Then I noticed yesterday, the, the, the day before, they're up to 120,000 by August 1st. So uh, what what happened? Observation of the inability to genuinely reverse the trajectory of the curve. Mm. And coupled with observation of, I mean, what they're focusing on is population densities and movement of people. So as you start seeing people moving about, the mathematics work against you. So has this been the fault of the medical care system? Has it been the fault of lack of testing? Has it been the fault of too much movement and contact by people or something else? More, more so it's, you know, increased movement of people to create those cases. But it's also a reminder that some of the calls again three weeks ago people were crying out the case fatality rate isn't that much worse than flu nonsense this is killing at a much higher rate than people had hoped and therefore these deaths it's a function of cases and they're dying at the rate that we had predicted three months ago and in spite of wishful thinking and we don't know at the end of the day what that case fatality rate is going to settle on, but it's not close to flu. I promise you that. You know, I think it's, it's worthy pointing out to our listeners, it's easy for us that this idea of death rate uh, as opposed to, to gross number of deaths mm. uh, when they're comparing it to flu, because I think often when people have been comparing it, we've said, well, the total number of deaths in Indiana from influenza versus the total number of deaths from COVID. But we really, to your point, need to be reminding ourselves that it's the death rate. How often do you die if you get the disease as opposed to the total number of deaths? What's the latest on those, those two key figures, Mark? The infection fatality rate and the case fatality rate. The case fatality rate is if you have symptoms, what's your chance of dying? The infection fatality rate is if you got the virus with or without symptoms, what's your chance of dying? I, I haven't been tracking those numbers in comparing okay. the two, so I can't really speak to that. However, to Chris's point earlier, I would like to mention, yeah, people are more attentive to just the total numbers of deaths, but I would like to propose if we had not put in place the orders we have, and let's say the entire country had been New Yorked, shall we say, hmm. we would have had 6.6 million cases and 480,000 deaths instead of what we have. In other words, social distancing has prevented 5.5 million cases and 418,000 deaths. Now that's under a very radical assumption that it could be, you know, that what happened in New York could happen across the whole country. So maybe those are overestimated, but at a minimum, it could have happened in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Houston, Miami, Chicago, and just calculating those out, we would have 11 times more deaths, even if just those six cities got New York. Mm. And so, and I don't mean to be crass in calling it that, but what we're talking about is a complete lack of ability to control the outbreak, including the ability to care for those infected. So um, this has been a sobering reminder as I've been tracking how uh, projections of what this might have looked like if we had not put in place this, the different orders, which I know is coming, becoming onerous for people, but we have to now recognize what it has accomplished. So where did you get those numbers? I just did my own estimates. Okay, so 5.5 million cases prevented and how many 400, deaths? 418,000 deaths. And that would be if you extrapolating now, somebody's going to say, well, it could never happen all over the country the way it did in New York. Okay, that's fair enough. So that's probably high estimates. But 
go down from there any degree of magnitude you want, you're still talking about a carnage beyond what we would ever. And that's assuming an attack rate of what percent of the population? Um, I don't remember the, I'd have to pull up my file to see what I okay. was working from on that. Sorry about that. That's fine. No, Paul Carson and I have been working on something similar for our paper. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think we came up with worldwide if we just let the virus run rampant with, uh, I think, a 0.66% infection fatality rate. Uh, it would be like 3 million deaths worldwide. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that we are saving people. I think that's good for people to realize because like Chris was saying here locally, it's like, you know, life seems almost going back to normal. I mean, not big gatherings, but we just don't see it. And like reading the public health literature, it says what helps the most with these social distancing things is if we are aware of someone in our circle who's been affected. Many of us don't have someone in our circle affected. So what do you think about the ways various states are opening up now, Mark? What do you think is rational? What do you think is too fast? What do you think might be too slow? Well, you're starting to see um, Montana, North Dakota, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Texas, and Georgia were some of the early pioneers to say, let's relax this. And some of those are justified. So for example, Texas, Oklahoma, Montana have a very low prevalence. So that's good. North Dakota and Tennessee have high testing rates. So that's good. Um, The portion of tests that are positive, Montana, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, all really good, you know, with low population density. So I, I see justification for those kinds of areas that have that. However, Georgia may have a problem on their hands because they were one of the first to open, you know, they were one of the first to to have an outbreak, but they also have not done very well with testing. You know, they have larger cities. And so um, I think this, you know, the states are clearly using some some data. They're not just, you know, as I looked at the states that have opened first that I just mentioned, they seem to many of them meet some good criteria to justify that. So it doesn't seem to be states going rogue, shall we say. Um, They're thinking about this. So I'm happy to see that. Do you think that any states might be going too slow or being too cautious? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, I think our neighboring Minnesota is much more cautious than North Dakota, but yet their their rates and their numbers uh, are, are comparable to ours. Um, but I couldn't say for sure. But, you know, I think they're getting itchy over there to get the, you know, the resorts open and people get out fishing. The fishing opener is Saturday and people want to just get out and go. Now, I would hate to be a public health official in some of these opening states because they may face the onerous task of having to reverse themselves yeah. and, and, and go backwards to more closed. And that's going to be a tough cat to get back in the bag, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yep. And what will people be looking at to decide if we need to hunker down again? Um, you know, I would say rise in the case, daily case numbers, you know, rise in deaths, so I would say those are still the two indicators that we'd be looking at. Um, I would say, you know, the ability of the people to handle handle the openness. So are restaurants following their protocols and are group events appropriate? You know, are you having parks opening up and are people playing and enjoying those parks in a way that shows a sense of respect for the need to still use social distancing? So those are some of the things that states will have to be monitoring. I mean, we saw California went backwards after the beaches got flooded with what seemed, I mean, they argued, the governor argued irresponsible people going to the beach or whatever, you know, so those are things that they're going to also follow. Now, does the availability of more tests make it more likely we don't have to go back to the levels that 
of shutdown that we were at because of testing and contact tracing, or do you think we may have to do both? No, I think the possibility of good testing and contact tracing gives us more comfort at opening up for sure. However, I think you probably also observe we don't have the capacity for testing that we would need, and we certainly don't have reliable antibody tests yet that we can really use widely to determine, you know, who really is is safe. There's a bunch of tests out there that have been, um, you know, promoted, but yet, I mean, it's gotten so crazy, the FDA has actually posted a special site just for reporting fraud and error in, in, in COVID testing. Oh my gosh. Um, because because the, the market has flooded, uh, been flooded with antibody tests, many of which are not proving to be sensitive and specific as necessary. And so they're not, you know, they're not reliable. Um, and then of course, there's also bad players out there who are taking advantage of this window to make money probably. But I think the majority, it's just that it's rushed to the point that, that you, you don't have uh, a basis by which, you don't have a gold standard against which to test your test to be able to determine your positive predictive value and your sensitivity. Because what is the gold standard for antibody testing? Who's got a laboratory to draw blood in order to test that, to be able to confirm that test? That happens when it's actually used in population. So anyway, there's, there's, there, that is a great prospect for relaxing the orders, but we're not there with the scale of testing and certainly with the reliability of antibody testing. What scale of testing do you think we need to be able to um, stay away from the extensive lockdown that we've had? 10% of our population. Over what period of time? Um, you know, within a few weeks time, because it's a moving target. You know, I mean, the antibody test is good, but it's only, if you're negative, it's only good for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you walk out the door, you're back in the state of uncertainty about whether you've been exposed. So with that and in so, mind, yeah. Mark, explain to listeners why, what's what good about testing? So if, if today we could test every single American, why, why is that a positive or a good thing? Are you talking now about serum, you know, yes. PCR, are you talking about serum antibody testing, right? No, actually I meant testing for the presence of uh, okay. virus. All right, so just to, so there's PCR testing for the presence of virus. That means a person's sick, that means they're shedding virus. That test is, is pretty limited in its value because it's gonna miss individuals who are early on and not shedding. It's also gonna miss individuals who have recovered to a point that they're still considered disease, but they're not shedding virus. Mm. And so those, that test is quite limited more to a clinical or a hospital role in many aspects, unless you're so concerned that there's so many sick people out there, asymptomatic people out there that it's worth swinging that wide net. So that was what we were stuck with back in March. And that's why we were, you know, getting, uh, we weren't getting the kind of suppression that we would have hoped from that type of testing. It was quite limited to individuals who who were symptomatic or, or, we, or diseased. In terms of antibody testing, that allows us to determine somebody who has been sick. And so if you can determine that an individual has been sick, well, then they're free. They don't have to you know, worry about any restrictions. Furthermore, if you can confirm that these restaurant workers, healthcare workers, you know, daycare workers have, have been tested and they're not diseased, then they're also safe to go back to work 
as long as they're still practicing social distancing. So that's the power of being able to test in our, our populations. And there's also a scientific reason in that it can help us get a better handle on the true denominator in this case. But that is, issue is being made clear over time. And the denominator being all those people who've been exposed to the virus with and without symptoms. Right. So what... What do you think is a rational way to respond to the fury, the rage that we see in the media, people on both sides? You mean, you've got the libertarians, so it's like live and let live, let us do what we want to do. You've got people who are more utilitarian, uh, and you've got people who are maybe even totalitarian. They want to shut down everything. How do we work our way through that in this very pluralistic society we call America? Mm. Um respect the experts you know i i know it's hard to decide but i'm a little concerned that you know we're all subject to authorities in our life right and and the government are those duly elected authorities they have hard decisions to make um sometimes i feel like this crisis has maybe separated certain prima donna politicians from politicians who truly are there to serve and guard and protect but um you know, I'm not, and I'm not picking favorites in terms of politicians here, but, you know, this is not a situation for the weak of heart. I mean, if you're in it f for the perks and the tailored suits and the wingtip <laughs> shoes, you're in, you signed up for the wrong job. And so it's, it's, it's an interesting reflection, but I think we have to respect our, our, our authorities and that would be our governing authorities. That would be medical and you know, public health authorities, that would be religious, religious authorities who are going to be asking us to alter our, you know, religious practices for the next uh, while. Um, you know, the anger, I'm, I'm concerned that a lot of the opposition and anger is, is driven more by a political perception that, I mean, let's face it, the current administration has been knocked completely off its base by this virus. And I think there's some elements that would want to somehow minimize the extent to which it reflects negatively on our current administration in ways that may not necessarily be in the best interest of ensuring the safety of the public and, and facing as a unified country, facing a biological reality that doesn't care about our politics or our opinions. So, you know, I do hope that that American people will 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 put that partisanship aside in order to respect the fact that there really isn't anyone out there who wants to make your life miserable. I don't think anybody wants to sabotage the American economy in order to get some political advantage. That, if that's the perception of the majority of our people, our leaders, then we're in a bad place. And, and I just don't believe that we're that bad of a country. And our, for the majority are doing their best. And I think we have to understand the uh, challenges that they're facing. You know, I think those are, those are great points, Mark. Thank you. I, I'm trying to remember, I spent a fair amount of time in the Southeast when I was younger. And, uh, and I, I think about hurricanes mm. and how we experienced dramatic limitations in our liberties mm. from massive storms. But in retrospect, they're very fast. Mm. So life after a hurricane or a tornado, it starts to get back to normal pretty quickly. I think maybe part of the problem in our psyche with this is it, it has drawn, it's, it's gone on so long, we don't really have any collective experience uh, as a country, as a people, with trying to restrict ourselves for such a long period. 
Yeah, no, definitely. It's, you know, we have lots of countries around the world who are far better prepared to face this than we are, I think, in that respect, you know, just we, we, we don't have the resolve and grit that a lot of countries have where they're more accustomed to facing natural disasters or, you know, other issues. Okay, now, Mark, Taiwan and South Korea were able to keep their case attack rate incredibly low and keep businesses open. How did they do that? And what can we do to imitate that? And especially with very dense populations as well. Yeah, you know, I, I'm familiar with those countries. I worked in China for a while and I'm familiar with some of the Asian healthcare systems. And I see a few factors in their, those two countries' systems that work to their advantage. You know, one is that they really do have a population-focused healthcare system, which is focused on keeping people healthy and preventing disease. So they were able to activate a massive system of testing right away. Um, you may remember no less an authority than Anthony Fauci when early on said our system is not geared toward what we need right now and what you're asking of us. And I think that's that our system is really good for, you know, acute and medical care, but we don't have a system that's, that's built well for addressing population issues. Um, you know, I and think we can't another, turn on that dime even in the last six to eight weeks, no, can we? No, we certainly can't. And uh, yeah, so we've we've paid for that. I think another factor is those countries have a more multi-tiered healthcare system. So they were able to activate public health professionals to start do drive, doing drive-through testing right now at a time when the U.S. was still requiring individuals to get a prescription from a physician to be authorized to get a test. And that's a, a multi-tiered level of authorization in those healthcare systems that can then empower. You don't need to be a physician to do a nasal swab. And so yet our system is oftentimes bungled up by excessive authority accumulated in a small number of people. Works fine when your population health numbers are good and you're dealing with acute health problems. But when you're dealing with a population level problem, we don't have a system that can suddenly, you know, empower and unleash this, you know, these thousands and thousands of multi-tiered uh, healthcare workers. And so I think that's another factor to their advantage. How long will it take us to get to that point? Boy, I sure hope this is a lesson for us. And, you know, I have my bias as a public health professional and in, in that I just think we need to be willing to allocate more public resources to build up our public health infrastructure. You know, we don't need to put physicians out in parking lots to do nasal swabs. We need to put, you know, <laughs> masters of public health students uh, out there. They're trained for that. And so, yeah, I wish we would find the resolve in our country to be willing to allocate more resource toward that. And it's not just preparedness, it's just prevention overall. Mark, something uh, that's been near and dear to my heart these last uh, four to six weeks is uh, what would happen if the decision makers had curves not only for COVID cases, hospitalizations, ICU usage and deaths, but also curves for increasing rates of drug overdoses, suicides, heart attacks, strokes, early deaths due to loneliness or social isolation, unemployment. What impact do you think they would have on policy changes uh, for social distancing? Yeah. Um, certainly the cases in those disease states you were just describing have been, you know, uh, amplified and worsened by the lack of healthcare provision to those individuals, particularly chronic and long-term disease states during the COVID crisis. So those people are definitely being, you know, excessively burdened by that. Um, but if they were to look at those curves, honestly, 
I have to say, I'm not persuaded that our officials are looking at those curves even in the absence of COVID. I'm concerned that our healthcare officials, even in the absence of COVID, are focusing on profitable diseases of the rich. Mm. You know, there's, there's still not a lot of concern from our officials to say, well, let's prioritize baby aspirin, hypertension screening, tobacco cessation counseling, pediatric vaccines, pneumococcal vaccine. Those aren't profitable. Those are not their priority. And then to say nothing of substance use disorders, chemical dependencies, mental health, you know, low back pain, Alzheimer's, opioid use disorders. Nobody cares about those diseases from a public perspective, even in the absence of COVID. I think COVID has revealed that our healthcare system is biased toward the privileged in our population. <laughs> that is a great insight. And, and those people are being devastated by COVID because it's now in our face and it's also limiting what we can access. But in the main, the healthcare officials are not focusing on the diseases that create the greatest burden of disease to use Chris Murray's daily concept. They're not focusing on the disease states that present the greatest burden of disease. They're, they're looking for the heavy hitters, you know, your heart disease that you can do, you know, cardiac procedures, cardiac screening, you know, think of the, some of the things we spend money on in our country in medicine, allergy screening, brain scans for Alzheimer's, you know, just lots of things that are, in a sense, luxuries of people who are privileged and have great health insurance. So I don't know, I don't mean to, you know, be cynical about it, but I totally understand, I couldn't agree with you more, but I have to say what is grieving me currently, and I work on opioid use disorder prevention here in the state of North Dakota, we have a project on that, and we're seeing our care numbers just go down to just about nothing for the last mm. six weeks, and it's just breaking my heart. But in some ways, what you're describing in the observation of these underserved and neglected, really vulnerable chronic disease patients you've just described, that breaks my heart every day of the year because that's the population that public health is trying to care for. So I do hope this is an opportunity for us to revisit how to prioritize our healthcare system more broadly. And what needs to be changed is our public health system. The medical system is great. However, there's this vast swatches of our society who are more in the population health realm who, for whom our public health system is not up to the task. And, and as we've learned, about 60 to 70% of health is due to public health measures. Only about 10% is due to what happens in a doctor's office or operating room, and then 20% or so is genetics. So right. we're usually missing. And, and yeah, you know that, but the vast majority of people don't. Yeah. And, and people don't, at least in our society, don't typically think in population terms. Mm. And it's one thing to be, to be thinking on an epidemiological scale, but we, you're right, we don't tend to do that. We tend to think about one-on-one, one-offs. It's kind of part of our national DNA, you might say, is that we're, we're such rugged individualists that mm -hmm. we continue that individualism uh, into healthcare. And, and as you point out, it's got some positives, but uh, mm -hmm. this is an example of it has some negatives as well. Mm -hmm. So, and another thing um, that you told me offline that we should discuss is, uh, you know, the very simple question is, how do we decide when the social distancing and economic shutdown is causing more death and disease than we're saving with our measures to combat this one disease? How do we, how do we know that? Yeah. 
Um, you know, I don't know if I have a metric to answer that question, but I do think we need to keep in mind, you know, the, the old at first do no harm medical concept, you right. know, the primum non no care kind of concept, but then there's right. also the public health. I know Dr. Tom loves words. Oh, well, we're, words Latin. The more, the more Latin, the better. <laughs> um, but there's a public health equivalent, which is focusing on disease prevention and health promotion, which means there's going to be some collateral damage and some harm done on the pathway to protect the majority. And when you feel the majority are at such risk and a situation is out of control, then that collateral damage on you know, the individual level is a price you have to pay. Now, when do you find that tipping point that the price is too high? And this comes back again to our healthcare system. I think we should have right now, we should have every state and every city should have meetings with the medical officers of the city and the public health officials of the city should be laying out a pattern of sequencing healthcare delivery for the next six months based on the prioritization of those chronic conditions which face the greatest long-term risk by being delayed any further. So we basically set up for our summer healthcare delivery based on not just who shows up or whose appointment has been scheduled, but based on what's needed to minimize that collateral damage among these vulnerable populations. Now that's gonna mean a lot of elective surgeries are still gonna to have to be kicked down the road potentially. And I understand that that's a serious economic crisis for a lot of medical institutions. But if we are thinking about addressing the burden of those who have been neglected, then we would wanna make sure that this summer as things slow, we're able to provide that care for those chronic disease patients where delay is likely to have years of impact. Do, do you think that there will be any increase interest or funding or work in public health going forward? Or do you think that we're just going to try to muscle through this over however many months it is and then forget about it? First off, the economy is going to be so devastated that the prospect of <laughs> public resources for public health will be challenged. But yeah, definitely there will be uh, increased prioritization. And let's hope that it's used wisely, you know, with genuinely for the best interests of the public. Well, Mark, I mean, look into your epidemiological crystal ball and what, what's the rest of 2020 look like for us? I mean, do we see uh, as summer approaches, do we think curves will flatten? Are we going to see a resurgence uh, in our traditional flu season in the fall? Or what, what do you think the next six to 12 months looks like? Well, there's good data that prior to April or prior to the first, first part of May here, for every degree increase, centigrade degree increase in temperature, there was a 0.7%, uh, there was a 0.7, yeah, for each one degree centigrade increase in temperature, there was a 0.7% decrease in transmission rate until the recent few weeks when it's now up to a 2% reduction. So with COVID, we are starting to see the benefit of increased temperature and it's been measured and reported. So that's a good sign. So what does that mean? I do expect us to see a decline in the summer, but I expect to see an increase in, uh, in October. And you know, honestly, I'm more, I've spent a, I spent a lot more time studying the epidemics of 2009 swine flu and 1968 swine flu based on the reality of the, trans, the, the 
uh, trajectories of those than I do the modeling that's projected into the future. And from 2009, we have every reason to believe we're going to have a significant resurgence in October. And that until we have a vaccine, we're going to be, you know, into 2000, 2022, in an absence of a vaccine, we're going to have to have 12 weeks of intense social distancing to suppress, followed by weeks of openness until we have a vaccine. So you think we're going to have and that's a repeat based on in the Kistler, fall? That, and that's not my numbers. That's based on Kistler from the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm going to look that one up. I mean, for our listeners and each of us, I mean, it really sounds like you're saying, hold on, it's not over. We're going to fight this battle for the remainder of 2020, maybe longer. Yes. So if we have uh, conferences this fall, we should probably plan on them not taking place. Yeah. How about September? Would you go to a September conference, Mark? <laughs> I hope so. I, I, you know, about three or four weeks ago, I, I told you September, August, we can probably have some conferences. Yes. You so did. let's hope. Let's hope. Very good. Mark, is there any, any final note? Well, no, as we go through this, what sources do you think that people should trust as we are going through this? Because that's one of the big things. Chris and I are, are routinely sent these YouTube videos and other papers to read by all these, I don't know if it's fear mongers, conspiracy theorists. I mean, they just have a certain ick factor to them. It's something just doesn't sound right. How do we know who to believe, what data to trust? Yeah, boy, that's a hard one. You know, um, you know, definitely the University of Washington ICHE work has been very steady. I just referred to the Harvard School of Public Health. Kistler's work has been good with some projections. But, you know, we got to believe the federal, you know, the CDC, what they're putting out. We have to believe our state health agencies. And I think when we have, you know, a couple of frustrated individuals call a press conference and record it and, and post it on YouTube and, and it just gets people agitated. Yes. I mean, they mean well. But we really need to be careful about knowing who are genuine authorities and, and what their motive is, you know, is there a conflict of interest, you know, based on the person who's who's making that statement. Sure, there's freedom of speech, but you also have to be responsible for the consequences of that. And so um, I tend to have a lot more respect for what our state and federal agencies are telling us in terms of numbers guidelines, precautions, than you know, various special interest groups or whatever. So, you know, I don't necessarily have specific, you know, recommendations, but I'd be very cautious about, you know, kind of the, the viral, shall we use that <laughs> social media concept, but, you know, the viral YouTubes and, and messages that go out that tend to suggest if something seems too good to be true, or if something is really flying in the face of the general understanding, be very skeptical. I don't know if anybody has a simple answer. And if it seems like they've got a simplistic answer to it, it may be, there may be more to it than meets the eye. You know, it's interesting. I use that very same thing when I'm talking to patients all the time for a mm. variety of medical problems. Mm. It has a seemingly simple answer to an incredibly complex problem. <laughs> I'm always suspect. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe that's a takeaway from, uh, from this pandemic as well. Mark, what final comments do you have for our listeners? Well, a little bit of one of our themes today, I think, has been, you know, just the concern nationally in terms of our national unity. And, and I think, honestly, I think part of our fear is an underlying iconoclasm or maybe even a disregard for institutions or authorities. First um, Peter 2.13 reminds us to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, 
whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. And this is a, you know, I don't mean to imply that scripture is, you know, an ant, like placebo or an opiate or anything. I think this is an important reminder to all of us. And it's not that far away from even Rousseau's concept of a social contract. We have to give up individual liberties for the sake of the greater good as part of our social contract as a civil society and a functioning democracy. And so I think we want to be thoughtful citizens and as people of faith, accept the fact that we should, yes, live as free people, but to not use our freedom as a cover up for things that aren't in the group's best interests. We're living under a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety right now. And I believe that together we can face this. We're having to show our unity in, in new ways and hopefully that can bring out the best in all of us. Mark, it's been a pleasure to have you back with us again. Thank you for being with us. Thank you to our listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Uh, and please share the good news of Dr. Doctor, albeit while you're appropriately distanced from your <laughs> Uh, and invite them to listen to their favorite, on their favorite podcast app or, of course, at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. Once again, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.